Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Today, Jacob's going to bring us something curious in popping culture. Then an academic deep dive, we're going to discuss the academic article, The Influence of Family and Friend Confidants on Marital Quality in Older Couples. Very fascinating. And then in good or bad advice, we're going to discuss advice from Twitter and Instagram. If you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all of the things at attached podcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Also, we are on YouTube as regular listeners definitely know. So please go to YouTube and watch us there if that's your preferred method of consuming podcasts. Like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or right there on YouTube. Remember, also, we appreciate a good rating and a good review. We're always looking for those. So, so think about it. We, we you know, so greatly appreciate it. But before we get to all of that goodness in today's episode, uh, what are you guys up to? How are you guys doing? Long time no speak. I'm doing pretty well. So during quarantine, I have had zero motivation to do exercise of any sort, but to try to motivate myself, I got this like cross trainer piece of equipment to like work out at home. Have you opened it? Yeah. Well, the problem is, is I have to put it together. (laughs) And so it's like, there's like 20 steps. And I can really? only get through like three at a time before I get like, like I'm exercising. Weak, like frustrated. you're not strong enough. <laughs> oh, the irony. Oh my goodness. Well, and also like, I'm really bad at like building things or putting things together. And so it's just like the mental energy it takes too is like so taxing that I get so frustrated. So oh, I can hear I it to, in like, your voice. <laughs> I feel like we've heard these stories, similar stories before about putting things together. How frustrating it is. I'm so sorry. I would literally pay somebody to come to my house and put it together for me just because I am so bad at it. Like whenever I try to do a house project, Chelsea knows that she needs to like not (laughs) check in because I'm going to be cursing. I'm going to (laughs) be frustrated and it'll take me twice as long as I expect. Eventually it gets done and it'll kind of work. it works for the most part, but then she's like, okay, do we need to have somebody check on that? It's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> for safety. They do have people like that, that you can pay to like come and do stuff like that, right? Yeah. And as soon as all those people get vaccinated, I probably would. Oh. But hopefully by that time, I'll have it set up. Like, you know, if I do my okay. three steps at a time, it should only take me about a week. So it'll be fine. And then you'll start using the machine and you'll be so strong. You won't ever need their help ever again. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Oh, Oh, that does sound frustrating. Woods, what you got? Well, I know that I so infrequently can contribute to pop and culture because my (laughs) like 
television watching ability is so behind you all. But what I've been up to lately is watching a new show called Ted Lasso. (gasps) Yeah. So tell us about um, it. When I say lately, I mean, I watched the whole season in the last 24 hours. It's really just been <laughs> the last two days that I have been watching this show. It's um, it's amazing. And I, because oh. I don't really know popular culture stuff, like I feel like I just am always behind. I don't know if like everybody was watching it when it started coming out like early fall or last summer, somewhere around there. And I just missed it. Or if it's like underrated, it is truly purely wonderful television it's what is it so about awesome. it is about this coach from the u.s who is recruited to come over and coach a british soccer team oh. and he knows nothing about soccer which they oh. <laughs> he is recruited to do that in part because the owner of the team wishes to make her ex-husband suffer she hopes that he's going to fail at it but just like the office is really not about paper sales the show is really not about football yeah. It's such a lovely show about all of these different human relationships. And he is so genuinely sweet and positive and the writing is really good. So it's very funny at the same time. But I mean, every episode I have tears in my eyes. I'm laughing. I am like holding my hands together, hoping that like the next step will just work out just great, which it will. So it has just a great energy and I super, super recommend it. Oh, fantastic. I want to watch it. That sounds. Where Where do you stream it? Apple TV. Okay. I don't know how to recommend that you get to the Apple TV. My husband did that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, but if you can find your way to that group of shows. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure how to do it either. Just a little insight into what happens around food in my family. So my kids at this, at the store, I've been, on occasion I'll get them these like mini chocolate croissants and they love them and they will just eat them. We don't do it that often, but when we do it, they just devour them and they love them. And I, you know, when I find something that the kids genuinely like it, 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 because you guys know how much I'm obsessed with food, like it fills me with joy. And I'm like, Oh, I found something (laughs) that they like. Like, this is so exciting. What a fun, like a fun little treat. So at the same store I went to the other day and they were selling the same little mini chocolate croissants, but rather than pre-baked, they were frozen. I thought, oh my God, how much fun. I can cook them at home and like they smell good and they'll be warm and oh my gosh, it'll be so much fun, like a fun weekend treat. So I bought them. I was so thrilled and excited. I'm sure you guys know where this is heading. Put them in the oven, baked them. The house smelled amazing. Butter and chocolate. And I gave them to my kids and they refused to eat them. (laughs) It was literally the same thing. Like that they are obsessed with. Uh, They just happened to be warmed and I cooked them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they refused to eat them wow. like my seven-year-old took a bite and she's like no I don't like these mummy <laughs> I was like, and after hearing that my four-year-old who will eat more of them loves them more than my seven-year-old wouldn't even try it he's like no I'm not going to oh <laughs> <laughs> so now I have because I because knowing that they love them on top You've of making them at home, I got a lot of them. Yep. I think I got like two dozen of them. 
So now I have a ton of frozen chocolate croissants that I think I'm just going to have to eat myself because my kids don't want them. It's not a bad solution. I think you should run an experiment. I think what you should do is like when they're like asleep, cook them, let them cool and then put them in the bag that you like typically bring home from the store and say, look what I got and see if they notice a difference. And then you could be like, guess what? These are the ones I cooked. And then it'll blow their minds. Jacob already knows the end, the results of that experiment though. You see how he's going here? Yeah, they might try it and it'll blow their children. (laughs) When I tell them, I don't know if it'll blow their minds. They'll probably just actively refuse to eat anymore. (laughs) And be mad. (laughs) We're mad at you. Oh, but it's not a bad idea. I will definitely actually try it because there's no way that, I mean, I I can eat that many chocolate croissants, but I probably shouldn't. First up, poppin' culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Jacob, what do you have for us this week? Have any of you watched Superstore on NBC? Yeah, a while ago. I haven't watched any of the new seasons, but... Okay, so that was one of our binge shows during quarantine. And Sarah Woods, I think this is right up your alley. I, I, I have had like it she... recommended before, but yeah. I've not seen it yet. Like I like as you were describing Ted Lasso, I kind of feel like this is in the same vein. And it's we were surprised. We never watched it and we started season one. And it's in its final season now. And we have been laughing hysterically. Oh. I mean, the characters, the dynamics are all. It's just really fun. It's really well done. I, I want to talk about it today, though, because I think it illustrates a really important concept that we often don't think about when we're talking about relationship advice. When we think about what influences our relationship, our relationships, we often think about what goes on inside the relationship, right? That if we communicate better or if we set better boundaries internally in the relationship, everything will be okay. But Superstore centers around like a Walmart, Target group of people who all work in the store and all the crazy stuff that goes on there. And like many people who work in retail, they don't have really great hourly wages. They don't have access to benefits. They have a lot of external stressors in their life that even during the process of like the course of the show, they try to form a union, but the major company ends up shutting it down. So they don't have, you know, kind of the access to take time off if a family member's sick or, you know, one of the episodes, one of the main characters played by America Ferreira gets pregnant and has to come back to the store two days later or lose, lose her job. Right. So it shows these dynamics of the pressures that people in relationships experience because of the context in which they're embedded. And I think that's something that we often don't consider when we're looking at other people's relationships Often we want to look at them and like say, oh, they're not doing well because of this, 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 and this, right? All things internal to their dynamic as who they are as a person. Right. When in fact, some of the largest and most important stressors of relationships happen outside of it. And when we look at what we would call, you know, like a dysfunctional relationship, I put that in quotes for those who aren't watching on YouTube, 
a lot of the time, most of the time, at least part of the reason why that's occurring is often because of these external stressors that put so much pressure on relationships, that put so much stress on individuals that having the energy and the ability to create, you know, have open, honest communication, have, you know, like the wherewithal to kind of regulate those emotions can be really, really difficult. And yeah. it's super impressive that a lot of people do it really well, given the context that the stresses are in. But I think when we think about wanting to improve relationships, you know, as therapists who listen to this, as people embedded in relationships who listen to this, you have to think about no amount of communication training is built to like withstand some of these external stressors. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, often as therapists or, you know, how to improve relationships, we want to build resilience. But if we're building resilience into structures and systems that are really toxic, we're setting people up to fail. So what I love about Superstore is it demonstrates this in a really accessible, funny, but thoughtful way. And I think that that's what we need to bring to our relationships too. If things aren't going well between you and someone else, it may be not just the context of what's happening in your relationship itself, but some of the stressors that are embedded within the structures and context in which your relationship exists. And so if you have the opportunity to explore that, and you know, if, if you have the ability to make shifts or changes in that, that can be really helpful. But also recognizing that some of those things, you don't have power and control to change. And that that shouldn't be a manifestation of you being a bad person or bad at relationships, but really a manifestation of how toxic these structures and systems can be for relationships. Yeah, so that sounds a lot heavier than what Superstore actually is, because <laughs> Superstore is a lot of fun and there's some really hilarious characters, but it does illustrate those points really well. I agree. And and I think that what you're saying is obviously true. And what I could appreciate in the our research in our field of research, we, we see a lot more publications research focus on that. I would say throughout the 90s and probably the aughts, it was much more focused on trying to quote unquote fix relationships so that they can remain intact because ultimately that was the goal is for a relationship to remain intact, a marriage relationship, but a lot more focus in the past decade has really been on understanding how those structures in the context of our communities and individual countries, but society at large impact these relationships. Because like you're saying, we can intervene all day long with communication skills, but if the stress is not coming from within the relationship, then we need to talk about different things. We need to, if we can't fix these societal things, a lot of research is pointing to, well, we need to help families focus on how to com- communicate or cope as a, as a family unit to deal with these, to deal with these structures. But ultimately a lot of that research is saying we need to fix these structures because we're failing families. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you get hit with a 50, $75,000 hospital bill, no amount of communication is going to allow you (laughs) to work through that stress, right? Like great example. I, I think, you know, like, you know, if you're using speaker listener technique, I feel that we're not going to be able to pay this, right? you know, like that is not helpful. It's, it's about 
understanding, exploring, and hopefully changing, shifting those systems and structures to really create an environment where families can thrive. Absolutely. And also go watch Superstore. It's fantastic. Now we're gonna to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled The Influence of Family and Friend Confidants on Marital Equality in Older Couples, written by Dr. Zhao Yang and Martyr at Penn State. Recently published in the Journals of Gerontology Social Science, this study explores the role of confidants in our lives and whether they support or interfere with older adults' marriages. The authors define confidants, quote unquote, as people you can confide in or talk to about feelings or things that are important to you. Confidence are people we trust very much and disclose really personal information to. And the authors point out that prior research has linked having confidence to better mental health, emotional well-being, and improved quality of life. But these relationships intersect with our romantic relationships in interesting ways. As many of us share with our family or friend confidants about problems in our marriages, meaning our confidants have the opportunity to support us, especially when we're struggling in our marriage, but they also may have the power to undermine our marriage as they take up time and energy and possibly promote negative thinking about our spouse. This may be especially the case for women in heterosexual relationships as women are more likely to share marital worries and seek support from friends and family, unlike men who tend to rely more on their spouse for that type of support and may stay connected with friends and family through their wives. Sarah, what did these researchers learn about confidants effect on quality of marriage? Also, as I can't think of anything without thinking of some stand-up comedian's bit, I am automatically thinking of John Mulaney's bit about how all of our fathers, none of them have friends. They just have their wives have friends who also have husbands. Oh, that's amazing. And also yeah. we totally need to find it and link it because that's Absolutely. Uh, definitely one of the one of the pieces you're describing. I sort of set up for this context, <laughs> a context around relationships that we're going to be looking at for sure. These researchers looked at three different features of these confidant networks of friends and non-spousal family. They looked at the size of those networks, how often people were in contact with these confidants and how emotionally close they were to these confidants. So they tested hypotheses a little bit differently. They tested the function of support from confidants versus interference. Namely, they predicted that larger confidant networks with more frequent contact and higher emotional closeness would predict higher marital quality for both spouses over time versus those features predicting lower marital quality for both spouses over time because they were interfering. They Mm. also suggested that these impacts would have more pronounced influence on wives' marital quality than on husbands, as you just suggested in your introduction, Patricia. And also for older couples, based on prior research, that friends would have more positive and stronger influences than family, which is really interesting. In some of our own research, we have not found that to be the case, but we have we also don't tend to sample adults at this much older end of the lifespan. So their sample was a nationally representative sample. 
they used 610 heterosexual couples who participated in both wave two and three interviews of the National Social Life, Health, and Aging Project who didn't have missing data. 97% of them were married, so we'll talk about them as husbands and wives. The baseline sample was 3,005 community-dwelling adults, 57 to 85 years, and that was at wave one, about 2005, 2006. So these are, these are very senior adults in these communities. So the initial data set had participants generate names of people with whom they most often discussed things that were important to them in the past 12 months, as well as names of anyone else who they consider to be very important or especially close to them. So up to six confidants that were not their spouse was what the focus of this project was. So they were asked what type of confidant that is, meaning are they a friend, a family member, a coworker, how often they talk to them from less than once a year to every day, how close they felt their relationship to that person was. And then these researchers calculated the number of confidants that they had, friends and families separately, as well as the average closeness ratings and how often they were in contact with friends and family separately. So then they looked at, and we've talked about this approach many times before, because it's really, really valuable in terms of understanding how people influence each other within relationships. They use this actor partner interdependence model. Here they used it longitudinally to look at the impact that partners had on their own marital quality over time, as well as the impact of their spouse's confidant networks on Mm -hmm their partner's marital quality over time. And they estimate those things at the same time across five years. And they also controlled for marital quality of baseline, which I think is really important, as well as race, education, physical health, depression, the duration of the relationship. So they controlled for a lot of other variables that you might, of course, could powerfully impact marital quality over time. So what they found, I only pulled out this one kind of introductory finding because I thought it was sad and funny. All spouses except for one husband listed their current partner as confidant. Could you imagine going through your whole samples researchers just finding an N of one out of 610 couples where just that one person was like, eh, anybody but my wife. <laughs> just, <laughs> she didn't occur to me. I don't know. Everybody listed their partner except for that one guy. Most, <laughs> almost I know almost all of the sample reported at least one non-spousal confidant and about 62% of confidants were family, 28% were friends for both husbands and wives. Wives had, as they predicted, larger networks and higher overall emotional closeness, more frequent contact with their confidants over time. And husbands had more positive marital quality, but also more negative marital quality at baseline and follow-up, which they said that they would have predicted based on prior research. But I thought was kind of interesting that they found that husbands had kind of more intense marital quality reports in oh, both directions. I know. I thought that was interesting. I don't, I don't know. So they both like, yes, they both like their relationship more and also dislike it more than their, than their uh, wives. At both baseline and follow-up. So I, I don't know, men get really emotionally invested when they're they're that much older. I, I personally will have to look up other research that kind of supports that, but the researchers themselves did not seem surprised. So what they found was that family confidant relationships were a little bit complicated. So they looked at friends and family. Were they? Were they? That's shocking. (laughs) That's shocking. 
we built a whole podcast around this idea, but they found <laughs> that in older adults' marriages, these relationships were a bit tricky. <laughs> Wives whose husbands had no family confidence at baseline had significantly more negative marital quality five years later. So my husband doesn't have any family confidence, anybody that they are very close to and, and trust in that way. As a wife, I have worse marital quality five years later. Wow. Yeah. Wives' closeness with their own family confidence at baseline, potentially you know where this is headed, their husbands had lower positive and higher negative marital quality five years later. Oh. Whereas husbands' closeness with family confidence didn't predict wives' marital quality. And when they looked at both friends and family at the same time, when they analyzed those together, the size of wives' and husbands' family confidence networks was associated with better marital quality for wives. So if there are more family supports, that tends to be good for wives. But my wife gets really close to those family members that she trusts. And if I'm the husband, uh, it doesn't go so well for me. (laughs) Interesting. It's a little bit complicated. And what the authors talk about is that it might reflect some of these kin keeping roles that women have in families, that they are potentially, especially in this generation that they're looking at really responsible for being connected to family and planning family events and taking on the role of caregiver for aging parents or for adult children. And essentially that that might start to reflect taking away attention and energy from the marriage, which for the women looks to be supportive, but for men maybe makes them lonely. That's extrapolating a little bit from the findings. Sometimes that's all we can do. (laughs) Oh no. I just didn't do science. I did the opposite. For friends, friend confidence had positive influences on marital quality. So the size of wives' friend confidant networks, how many friends that they said that they trusted and talked to regularly, or at least in the last 12 months about things that were important to them, had higher positive and lower negative marital quality five years later for themselves. Wives who had more friends, better marriage five years later. Husband's closeness with their own friend confidence at baseline had lower negative marital quality, but also their wives had higher positive marital quality five years later. Yeah. So if your husband gets some friends, then it's good for everybody. (laughs) So overall, having everyone in the marriage, everyone in the marriage, right. It's good. Well, yes, potentially if your friends are married also, and they too have large social networks, it's a real ripple effect. Everybody benefits. And now we're talking about a friend commune. No, that's not right. (laughs) (laughs) So overall having, that's a, that's that's definitely an extrapolation. Yes, it didn't say anything about living close to these people, which is important because more and more people live further away from, well, their family. And maybe that's another thing that just makes family complicated. I don't know about friends. Anyways, so having more friend confidence, feeling close to them, it's valuable for a marriage. And part of what the authors talked about is that for older adults, friends might really remain a powerful source of, they use the word companionship, which I really love, and the social activity. They're engaging with them quite a bit as they age and they confide in them. And if they're getting support from them, they also suggest that maybe it's reducing the burden on their spouse to be our sole social support. And when that happens, it might improve the quality of our relationship over time. 
And, and this makes sense, especially with older adults, if you think within the context of retirement, because there's a body of literature that says during that transition to retirement, a lot of roles are changing and a lot of relationships, marital relationships can experience a disruption in the marital quality. But during that transition, and of course, we're extrapolating here, though that friend confidants, especially if you're spending time with them, might help ease that transition because mm-hmm. people in this age group, if they are retired, they have a lot more free time available than they did throughout the rest of their adulthood. So a takeaway is when I retire, which hopefully is not too long in the future, you all are going to have to spend a lot of time on the phone with me so I can confide in you. I'll enjoy my free time and my marriage. Thank you Yay! so much, guys. We'll just, well, when you retire, we'll just do the podcast once a week and not every other. That's right. That's right. That's right. And a commune. That was the other piece. Don't forget about oh, the commune. That's I right. mean, right. we'll be on like season 30. Season, well... I mean, I feel like I'm closer to retirement than that, aren't I? (laughs) Just kidding. So what is important to remember, of course, is that this is in the context of older couples. We don't know exactly how this happens in younger couples, meaning this study was not done with younger couples. The authors do point to the fact that some of this friend importance might be different for older couples than younger. And even though they talk about the fact that having confidence who are friends and family may be people we go to to talk about problems in our marriage, they didn't assess specifically what we were confiding in these people about. So they didn't actually assess whether they're confiding in family and friends about the problems in the marriage. And I actually think that's a really interesting question. And I think there's some mixed findings in the research about when you take the problems in the marriage outside of the relationship, when is that potentially positive and supportive? And right. with whom do you want to have those connections versus when is it toxic or when do they reinforce some of those ne- that negative thought pattern or when do they not have the relationship's best interest at heart and how much is too much, et cetera. Those are other kinds of research questions that I think would be really cool follow-up. But I think in general, the takeaway is as we age, family are complicated in terms of how they impact our marriage. And some of that, it looks like could potentially be tied to the labor that wives put into maintaining those ties. And for them, it might be positive. So what does that look like in terms of how we understand how it impacts the marriage for husbands, but also how husbands could maybe share some of that labor as we age. Mm. Whereas friends have really positive value for marriage as we age. And in general, I think the really cool takeaway, I mean, as always, we're always seeing this message in the research, and that is a selection bias, to use a research term. Our relationships are all interrelated. So it is really important to understand how our family and our friends influence our romantic relationships because just as Jacob said in pop culture, right, we exist in context. And so if we're thinking about how our relationship is working or what is maybe not working so well about a relationship, how intentionally are we thinking about how do you connect with your family? How do I connect with my family through you? And does that Mm. make you kind of tired? How do you talk about our marriage with your friends? What's okay about that? What boundaries do we have about that? I think it's really important to think about these are not relationships in isolation. They're not linear. They're not static and they're not separate from each other. All of the relationships that we have have the power to impact one another. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from parents, families, and friends, as we just talked about, people maybe we consider confidants. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows, and we read 
endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and all of those numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just actually isn't good advice for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at attachedpodcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please like and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And you know what? Share it with your friends and families. All those people that you consider confidants, I'm sure they'd love it. So today we have a menagerie of advice from Twitter and Instagram. The first one is from Rainy Day Boxes Company, Rainy Day Boxes Co. on Instagram. That might sound familiar. We had one of the founders on this time last year, actually. So please feel free to go back and and listen to that episode. But this was some advice that their Instagram account put up a little while ago about grief. Grief is not a disorder, a disease, or a sign of weakness. It is an emotional, physical, and spiritual necessity. The price you pay for love. The only cure for grief is to grieve by Earl Grohlman. So what do we think? Good or bad advice about grief? Great advice. There has been a tendency to try to pathologize grief. Yeah. Of trying to make it into like major depressive disorder or, you know, a sign that you should only be able to grieve for a certain amount of time. I love this advice. You know, grief will look different, will be as different as unique as each person's relationship. Allowing people space to grieve, giving them permission to grieve, grieving with them if appropriate, I think are all good things to do. So Rainy Day Boxes usually comes through very strong and they've done it again. Great advice. Good advice from Jacob Woods. I agree. It's it's excellent advice. It is absolutely reflective of the power of the connection of the relationship that the loss is felt so powerfully. And what a shame it would be to ignore the power of that relationship mm. by trying to pretend that the grief didn't exist or kind of promote this this really culturally defined idea of closure and that there should be an end point to that grief and sadness and that we should get there as quickly as possible. I love that advice. Yeah, I, I really want to lift up the what both of you guys are saying, the history of trying to pathologize grief coupled with the idea that you should, quote unquote, get over it or move past that grief as quickly as possible in our in our culture. Well, like they said, the only cure for grief is to grieve, to go through that process completely. And I, and I really resonate and, and like that piece. So good advice from Rainy Day Boxes Co. Next on Instagram as well is the relationship healer talking about relationship communication. So the relationship healer says, common myth, if I show my partner the way I want to be loved through my actions, they will eventually show me love in the same way. In reality, Taking the risk and communicating to our partner what behaviors or actions help us feel most love sets them and the relationship uh, up for success. So good or bad advice talking about the difference of showing versus communicating. I think good advice. I think if we're relying solely on 
these are my behaviors. See, figure this out. That's problematic. And communicating what we need and to feel loved and supported in a relationship is important. And I also think it's okay to do both, right? Mm. To be able to, hopefully your partner's in tune to say, oh, I see that my partner does this for me and that means a lot to them. So I'm going to try to do that too, right? That sense of attunement is another process of communication. And so not only asking and talking about what we need, but also trying to be attuned and pay attention to things that your partner may not even recognize they do that really means a lot for them is key. So good advice. I think if you're just relying on behaviors, you're going to be problematic, but Mm -hmm. also behaviors can be key in this process of communication in a relationship. Right. So good advice, but that's not necessarily discounting the power of showing love to your partner in a way as well. Woods, good or bad advice? I think this is great advice. I think this is really common in relationships that we, the, the first piece, the myth piece that you described is, I think a lot of times what people think our partners or our family members should be able to do, they should be able to pick up on if I am showing you right. or I am responding in a certain way, or how can you not possibly read that I was really upset about this, or I did this for you. Don't you want to reciprocate? They have no idea. I mean, they are our friends, our family members, our romantic partners. They can be creatively and wildly off base all the time (laughs) interpreting things. There are countless times during a week where my husband misunderstands what I'm showing or how I'm feeling and the reverse. So it is my responsibility to be able to communicate that and share that. And the attuning piece that Jacob is talking about, I think it's also important to interpret that in terms of listening to that other person. So when I'm communicating, do you show up by listening and really trying to understand what it is I'm saying so that the next time I'm showing you some of that, you have a greater ability to understand it without requiring me to always explain with words. But I, I agree with the advice entirely. I think the communication is really key because man, the misinterpretation of nonverbals and behaviors is all over the time, all over the place in all relationships. In all relationships, right. And it's not a sign of a bad relationship. It no, is this happens all common. the time. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I fully expect that my husband should be able to read me by now. Don't you know what I'm thinking about? And then he will make these beautiful attempts and he will say back to me what he thinks he's observing. And I'm like, that is not at all how I'm feeling. And it happens the exact same in the reverse. And it's not because he's not caring and it's not because I'm not caring. It's just right. because we operate differently. We have we have different perspectives and different experiences and- You're different and, humans. Right, yeah. So overall, good advice, but again, not to discount the power of attunement with your partner and showing things as well. But I think also attunement, you know, can be- sometimes a bit of a slippery slope, right? Like if you're relying too much on attunement without checking into making sure your attunement is the correct interpretation, that can be (laughs) potentially problematic too. So bouncing between the two, but also communicating what your needs are is a fantastic quality to have in a relationship. So good advice. And next we have at Parenting with Perspectacles on Instagram says, parent in a way that your kids will not need to go to therapy to learn how to love themselves. Good or bad advice? So I'm going to say bad advice. 
And I want to point out a couple of reasons why. First, when you look at like, there's a researcher out of the University of Minnesota whose name escapes me, but looks at like attachment when people are pretty young and the outcomes it predicts in adulthood. And it's actually really, really small. Like the effect of parenting, I think we sometimes oversell, right? That parenting is going to be the only determining factor that's going to happen in a child's life that's going to get them to become healthy, successful, and well-adjusted, right? But that is a missing ton of context, right? Not only can things outside relationships like systems and structures affect relationships, but individual, you know, personality, genetic makeup, all that stuff, what you do for one kid isn't going to work for another kid. And, and parenting is dynamic and complex. And so I think if you have this expectation that I am going to be able to parent well enough that my kid's never going to need help from somebody else. I've been to therapy and I think I have great parents, right? (laughs) Like, and those two things exist together, right? Like, I don't think we need to narrowly and put more pressure on parents that they have to be solely responsible and they fail if their kid ends up in therapy. Right. Bad bad advice. Bad advice, Woods. Yeah, I definitely agree bad advice. I'm sure it is well-intentioned. And also, first of all, way to stigmatize therapy. Therapy is for many different reasons. And I hope to parent in a way that promotes my child's ability to ask for help when they need it. And it may be for a myriad of reasons, including potentially their relationship with me. But that's because I'm not an infallible human. And I don't really think it's a reasonable goal to set up for parents that they become infallible humans who have relationships and parenting skills that are never going to disappoint their children. That isn't how relationships work. And allowing your child to express their emotions, communicating with them openly, setting clear boundaries, having a positive romantic relationship in front of them. You could do all of those things and your child might still benefit from therapy at at many points in their life. So I really hope for the opposite. I hope I'm parenting in a way that allows my child to ask for help when they need it, especially from therapy. I, I agree. I think that my approach to parenting is is almost the exact opposite of this, that I hope to parent in a way that my kids feel comfortable going to therapy, especially as adults, and also can recognize when they need to go to therapy, because those can be two different things. I agree. This feels like it's almost stigmatizing therapy when we need to... we. Our mission as uh, people in this society need to work to destigmatize mental health, right? Like this is this is a problem in our in our society about seeing people with mental health as as wildly problematic. I would say it's really linearly blaming, right? So it's setting it up that parents are the cause and therapy is this negative effect, but it it just doesn't work that way. That's not how people are in relationships with each other. And so it's it's really blaming in a way that I, I just am not sure is very helpful. A resounding bad advice, though, of course, with a caveat, I'm sure it's meant with a good intention. So next on Instagram, sit with wit, kind of love it, on Instagram. And this is about having a relationship with someone you disagree with. You don't have to agree with every decision a person makes in order to love and support them. A good rule of thumb 
If your decisions aren't directly impacting you or harming you, it's okay to trust that they're doing what's right for them. Good or bad advice? So I'm trying to reflect on the second part of that. It took a turn. (laughs) Yeah. So the first part I think is good advice. Loving across difference of opinion, culture, religious, spiritual beliefs can, if done well, and sometimes you may need a therapist to help you do this, um, can enhance a relationship, right? Differences can create this space where the balance between being us and being me can be a dynamic process that's not a threat to the relationship, but something that brings us closer together and allows for growth and connection and support and all those types of things. That last piece, it kind of got convoluted. I don't know if you should just like measure decisions based on whether or not they hurt you, Mm. right? Like decisions may not affect you, but they also may affect people you love, people in your community, right? Like I think, for example, so I run an LGBTQ clinic and if people are making decisions that try to remove rights and opportunities from people who are queer identified, that doesn't affect me, right? Mm. I'm in a straight relationship. But if, if my mm. partner was like, oh, I'm going to actively promote this, I, that would not necessarily affect me, but it would hurt people that I care about, that I love. And I yeah. think so that's not the best piece of advice. You need to think broader in terms of your actions than just your partner or, you know, a, a sibling or a parent. So the first bit, good advice. The second bit, maybe in terms of harm that decisions make, think a little bit broader about about that. Woods, good or bad advice? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the first portion is good advice that I don't have to agree with every decision that a person makes in order to love and support them. I think that's the definition of relationships that is going to be true for every single person I'm in a relationship with, no matter how close or distant. Um, And I think the second part is bad advice. I think that it is only one very small measure of how to evaluate somebody's behavior, somebody's decision-making, somebody's being in a relationship with me. There are absolutely times where I might be in relationships with people where the decisions they're making do not directly impact me, but it it might be valuable that I call out their behavior as really problematic, which is I think what Jacob is describing. And I also think that there are lots of times where people might ask me for advice or might want to debrief with me or just kind of process out loud about something they're struggling with. And I think my default position isn't typically that I just trust that they're doing what's right for them. I think probably if they're coming saying, I need some help or I'm struggling, that it's more important that I start with empathy and support, but then talk with them about where their decisions are coming from or how they're being affected right now by whatever's going on. I don't, I don't know that everyone is always just doing what is right for them. And I'm not sure that's a very relational perspective in terms of doing what's right for me isn't the, again, the only way to evaluate a decision. So good advice on the bit, on the first part, bad advice, uh, we're going to say on, on the second part, encouraging people to maybe think more relationally. And also, I think what I hear you saying, Sarah, is just because Someone, someone, you know, makes a decision you disagree with and you call them out on that. Calling people out doesn't mean we don't love and support them. Right. I I think that that 
there, there, there's kind of an underlying assumption that if we call people out on something mm-hmm. uh, and I could definitely be wrong, but uh, that, this is what the second bit of this advice feels like that mm-hmm. if we call people out on something, that means we don't love and support them mm-hmm. when in mm-hmm. actuality, it might mean exactly that, that we yeah, love oh, and support yeah. them enough that yep. we want to um, express our concern with some decisions yeah. that they're making. And I trust that you can hear that feedback that right. I I value and I trust you enough to know that this is important and that you would want to hear this reflection because these are some other pieces I'm curious about, curious about. And that calling somebody out also doesn't need to be aggressive. I think in our right. culture, that phrase has taken on kind of an aggressive tone and I certainly don't intend that. I think probably what she's intending to suggest here is maybe taking a non-judgmental stance. And if that's what this piece of advice is intending to imply, I'm okay with that in generally, this idea of being non-judgmental. But I think it has too many concerning connotations for me to say it's anything other than bad advice. So our last piece of advice today comes from Kay Rhodes, 0521. And this is Catherine Rhodes. And she is responding to someone's tweet that says, I've tweeted this before, but my ethics professor impregnated his son's girlfriend. I think about it every class. So Catherine said, my interpersonal relationships professor, which automatically, you know, some bad stuff is going to come, told us she tracked everything her husband did on his phone and computer, GPS, internet history, text, emails, because the secret to a successful marriage is knowing that you can't trust anyone. (gasps) (sighs) Now, I don't know if that's an extrapolation from Catherine or not, but it's definitely the implication. So good or bad advice. So I think Catherine's saying that this advice is bad, right? Because it is terrible advice. If you are living in a world where you must follow, know every movement a person that you are connected to is making, there's something not going well in your relationship. It's, it's go see a therapist right now (laughs) like that. Like if you are at that level of distrust, of control, that's just scary across the board for me. So, so Catherine is saying this is bad advice and I totally agree. This is <laughs> terrible advice. Not a good way to create a good relationship is to stalk your partner. <laughs> Who's got the damn time? My gosh. <laughs> I was going to say that. Get a hobby. Oh, okay. So Jacob, sorry, Jacob, bad advice was... Yeah, very bad advice. I think the point of this segment in Good or Bad Advice is to counter these ideas when necessary with science. There is an overwhelming amount of science that trust is one of the core factors in a relationship that promotes its success. And tracking somebody's text, emails, internet history, GPS, etc., especially when the purpose is that I don't trust you because I can't trust anybody is so problematic and really, really bad advice. I agree with Jacob that if the goal is to maintain the relationship, thou shalt get thyself to therapy as quickly as possible. I definitely love that. Thou shalt get thyself to therapy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I did that right. Yes. Yeah, it works. As quick I as I it. can. <laughs> Uh, I also think we need to quote that for sure. Put that into <laughs> catch podcast, get thyself to therapy. <laughs> but I agree. Both of you are saying that this is bad advice. So we uh, fervently agree with K 
Catherine and really hope that this interpersonal relationships professor gets thyself to therapy. <laughs> As always, thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on all of those social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk to you.